Amen. Amen. Let us uh, turn then to our scripture reading for this morning, page 1143, and most of the Blue Bibles under the seats. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Uh, it's been a few years since we were in uh, any of the gospel narratives for uh, Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. And so uh, this year we come to the gospel of John. Uh, the triumphal entry is one of the, one of the few events recorded in all four gospels. John chapter 12, we'll begin reading at verse 9, we'll read to verse 19, and we'll be looking especially at verses 12 to 19. John chapter 12, we begin our reading at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So far the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Well, dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the pace of the historical records uh, given to us in the Bible vary greatly. We have chapters like Genesis 5 where hundreds of years are covered in a chapter. Uh, more commonly throughout the Old Testament, we have uh, decades, we have a number of years covered over the course of, uh, of a number of chapters or over one of the historical books. Well, there is, there is one a week in the history of the world for, for which the infallible record of Scripture slows down. We have it recorded from four different angles. We have it recorded slowly, almost day by day, sometimes almost moment by moment, sometimes four different views of a single moment. There is one week, the week 
which stands at the thematic center of the history of the world, the providential center of the history of the world for which the record of Scripture slows down. Everything before anticipating it, everything after looking back upon it. It is the Passion Week. It is the week of Christ's suffering. And that's really all that Passion Week means. We don't use the word passion this way anymore, but it's an older meaning of the word passion. Going back to the old Latin roots, an older meaning of the word passion is just suffering, to suffer. It's the week of suffering. And indeed, uh, even as we think of the, the triumphal entry and in all the crowd shouting, from this moment, and, and indeed before this moment, Christ is thinking about his suffering. That's the purpose. That's why he is coming into Jerusalem. He is coming with the purpose of suffering and dying. The crowds did not understand this. Indeed, uh, we're told later in the chapter, in verse 37, that this was a largely unbelieving crowd. His own disciples, though Jesus had tried to explain this to them, did not really understand these things until after Christ was glorified. And so our theme this morning is this, that Jesus comes to shake the expectations for the King of Israel. He comes shaking those first expectations for what he could and would do. He comes to suffer. He comes as a humble king to die for others. Well, brothers and sisters, we, we begin our first point. We look at the shout of welcome in verses 12 and 13. And this was a large crowd in Jerusalem. They've come for the Passover feast, as John tells us back in chapter 11, verse 55. And as they're arriving for this feast, they, they've heard about the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. There were many witnesses to this. And that group of witnesses is, is going before Jesus, giving testimony to what they saw, this man in grave clothes, Lazarus, coming out of the grave. And, uh, and all of this leads to the, the attention of all these Jews coming into Jerusalem being turned to one man, their attention being turned to one specific Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, as he is coming also into Jerusalem. According to uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, there was once more than 2.5 million Jews in Jerusalem for a Passover feast in the first century. Even if that number is exaggerated, the conservative estimates are in the hundreds of, of thousands. This was a large crowd. No wonder Matthew and Mark add the detail that there was a crowd of people both before Jesus and behind Jesus. And what is this large crowd doing? Well, they, they are waving palm branches. What is significant about a palm branch? Well, there is an Old Testament feast. Uh, it's the opposite time of year from Passover. It's six years before or, or six months before Passover or six months after Passover, however you want to look at it, called the Feast of, of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, the palm branches had a prescribed significance in that feast. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament ceremonies and feasts. They're all looking forward to him. They're all anticipating him. And so this was an appropriate action, even on the days of Passover. This, there's something very appropriate about this. But 
That's almost certainly not what anybody in the crowd is thinking about. Because palm branches were not just used for the Feast of Booths, they had also come to be a national symbol, especially a symbol of of insurrection and Jews standing together against the the Roman rule that they were under. And so, for example, uh, in the years after Christ, when the, the Jewish wars were going on, the Jewish rebels, the Jewish insurrectionists, they printed, they minted their own coins and they put a palm branch on those coins. Uh, or uh, for a, an important symbol in the years before Jesus Christ, when Simon Maccabeus uh, destroyed the Syrian army and was celebrating his military victory in Jerusalem about 150 years before Christ, he was, he was waving his palm branches. That was, that was part of the celebration of the Jewish military victory before the time of Christ. And so as the, the crowd is, is shouting out and as they're uh, making this welcome for Jesus Christ, and the Jews knew their genealogies, right? Some of us, some of us, you know, we, we might ask, you know, who, who are your great-grandparents? And some of us know our family history. We, we might be able to rattle it off. Others of us don't really think about our family history that much or, or even know it and certain things have been lost in just a matter of a few generations. Well, the Jews knew their family history. They, they kept genealogies. Some were lost during the exiles and, and things, but many still had their record kept in the temple in Jerusalem. And so they knew that Jesus was the physical descendant of David. This was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. He's of the royal line. And he's performing these mighty miracles. He just raised a man from the dead. Is our king come back? Is he, like David, going to defeat our enemies and free our land from oppressive rule? This is what the crowd was thinking about with their palm branches. This is what they were thinking about as they quoted from Psalm 118. Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, or uh, the, the, the verse before, back in verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, they're thinking about military things. The King of Israel is not referenced in Psalm 118. They've added that line. And even the words Hosanna, which mean save us, had come to be used like the word hallelujah. They had come to be just a general explanation of a general word of praise, a shout of praise. And so they're saying appropriate things. Hosanna, save us. They're holding appropriate symbols, palm branches, but every indication is that they they do not understand why that's appropriate. They're they're saying and doing these things with, with the wrong motivation in mind, with with the wrong thought pattern, with the wrong expectation. So they add words about a king, and and we know they're not thinking about salvation. They're not thinking about mercy. Matthew and Luke tell us that there was blind men who were calling out to Jesus for mercy. Have mercy upon us. And what did the crowd do? The crowd rebuked them. Don't call out for mercy. Don't call out for the salvation of your soul. This is, this is our king. Call out for war. Take your palm branch of victory so we can march in 
They were, they were a large enough crowd to, to worry the authorities. The Pharisees who you know, had their position of, of kind of power underneath the Romans, we'll, we'll see in, when we get to our third point in verse 19, they're, they're definitely worried. They're rattled. This is, this is a large enough crowd. They, they could, even without weapons, they could go in with mob rule and take over if they want. If Christ incited them, if Jesus incited them, they could take over Jerusalem. They could at least have mob rule for a time. And every indication is that that's what they want their palm branches to do. They want to wave the palm branches in the face of Romans by the end of the day. But that's not the purpose that Jesus came for. He came first for the purpose of humility. That is why he is entering Jerusalem. He does not come to spark rebellion. He comes to die on a cross. And we'll see this now as we come into our second point, the prophecy of old, verses 14 to 16. Now, uh, there was another time in the Gospel of John after the feeding of the 5,000 when the crowd wants to take Jesus and make him king. And at that time, Jesus, he just escaped. He just got on the boat with his disciples and he escaped in the evening. Well, this time, Jesus cannot escape. He has to go into Jerusalem. He has a specific purpose and he must be here. And so he can't just walk away from the crowd. And so what does he do with this frenzied crowd? Well, he does something which is both immediately obvious for the sake of humility and has a further depth to its sense of humility. Okay, what are, what are, we'll, we'll go through those one at a time. What is the immediately obvious humility of Jesus Christ? If we ask even some of our youngest children, well, not our infants, obviously, but some of our youngest children, what is more humble? A war horse or a donkey? The mighty rearing war horse or the braying donkey? Even our youngest children know the donkey is a more humble animal. It doesn't charge. It doesn't rear up. It, it, it even sounds kind of wimpy. Hee-haw! I mean, it's, it's, just, it's a pretty wimpy noise. What does Jesus do? Does he come in on a war horse? No, he, he comes in on a donkey. It's, it's, there's, there's something immediately humble about that kind of ugly-looking animal slowly lumbering in. It has been said that if Jesus rode in on a war horse, the rebellion would have started right there. Now, Jesus will come on a war horse. Revelation tells us that when Christ comes again, the second coming, the coming of glory, the coming of power, the coming of restoration, the coming of judgment, he's coming on a war horse. But that was not the first purpose of Jesus. That is not why he first came. So he rides in on a humble donkey. Now, that's not only has this, this immediate humility to it. 
which, again, compared to riding in on a war horse, it's, it's going to calm the crowd somewhat. It also has a depth of humility. And for that, I, I'd like you to turn back with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. So if you just start from Matthew chapter 1 and, and page back through the, old, the, the last pages of the Old Testament, you'll soon come to Zechariah 9. This deeper meaning was not even understood by the disciples until after Christ's glorification. We're told that in verse 16 of our text. We're going to read three verses from Zechariah 9. Uh, The the immediate quote right there in John 12, verse 15, is from verse 9. We're going to read the context as well. Zechariah 9, beginning at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of the covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now let's make a few observations here from Zechariah 9. Uh, first of all, it's it's a specific prophecy that is you know, directly fulfilled. Christ did this self-consciously. He rides on the donkey. He is the king. And that prophecy is fulfilled. And second of all, the language of king, remember that, that was something that was not in Psalm 118. They, the crowd added that to their, their shout from Psalm 118. They added the king of Israel. That word is appropriate. Christ is the king. But what what kind of king? He's focused here in his first coming upon the fact that he is the humble king. He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey. He will rule from sea to sea. But what's the focus here is that he does that through peace. They will not be waving palm branches in the faces of the Romans at the end of the day. That's not what Christ wants. That's not the purpose of Christ's first coming. His first coming is focused on peace. There will not be a coming of judgment until Christ comes again. And then let's notice this. Look at the language of the blood of my covenant in verse 11. This is the immediate context of the prophecy that Christ is directly fulfilling as he walks into Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, he rides in on the donkey of Zechariah 9, verse 9. On the night in which he was betrayed, which by the Jewish counting of the day that begins when the sun sets, the very day that Christ died, what did, what did he say about the blood of the covenant on that night of his death? He said this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. This is my body, which is the blood of the covenant 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why did Christ come? Christ first came in humility to spill his blood to die for sinners, to set us free. That's the last part of verse 11. It's said in prophetic language. It's not immediately apparent that it's language of salvation. But it's, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. We are all in the pit of our sins apart from Christ. We are all in the waterless pit of death and sin apart from Christ. But Christ came to set us free by his blood. He first came to die so that many would have peace under his rule and be saved from sins. So, brothers and sisters, we often call this the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday. And that name is appropriate in a number of ways, but we could also call this the misunderstood entry of Jesus Christ. Going back to our text and looking at verse 37, John tells us there in John 12, verse 37, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then looking at verse 16, even his disciples did not really understand these things. What are these things? The things of salvation. And uh, if we were to go further through the book of Zechariah, that humble king is later called a shepherd. And in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, Zechariah prophesies about how he will be pierced, how he will be wounded for the salvation of others. That is why Christ came. That was his purpose. And so now, brothers and sisters, it is time for us to ask ourselves, how do we first see Jesus? Do we look to Jesus for things first? What can Jesus do for me? What blessings will I have on this earth? How will I be able to Wave the palm branch in the face of my enemy. How will I be able to you know, add my, my own lyric to Psalm 118 that I want? How, how will Jesus give me a simpler life? Take my disease away? All, all of these kinds of things. What will Jesus do for me? The temptation for us always is to ask those kinds of questions first. What is Jesus going to do for me? What is Jesus going to do for me now? How is he going to bless me now? Well, it is true that for all of God's people, there is great and eternal inheritance and blessing. But that is not yet. We are called on this earth to take up our cross and to suffer after the one who first came to suffer for us. The first purpose of Christ must be the first way that we look to and for Christ. Before anything else, we need to look for that blood of the covenant by which many have the forgiveness of sins. And we say, Christ, I am a sinner. Before anything else, cleanse me from my sins. And may I trust in your death on the cross for my salvation. Do not look to Jesus for things first. Look to Jesus as our Savior well, brothers and sisters, we'll uh, briefly cover the, the third point, schemes of death. In the Gospel of John, John keeps that 
purpose of Jesus Christ of coming to die before our minds in his narrative, and he does that by, uh, by giving us uh, inserts of the plots of the Jews. And so back in chapter 11, uh, there's uh, some detail on, there's, uh, there's even really a debate among the Pharisees, what are we going to do? The high priest Caiaphas stands up in verse 49, and, and he says, you know, basically, we have to kill him. And uh, that's the argument that carries the day. And then their plots continue. They're described more in chapter 12, verses 9 to 11. And uh, how does sin work? Usually when there's one sin, it adds to another. That's true both for you know, large evil schemes and for what we might call everyday sins. Right? So the, uh, the child who, who is told to pick up their toys and doesn't pick up their toys, what's the temptation then? To lie when asked about it. Oh, I picked him up. Or the uh, adult who struggles with anger or laziness. What's the temptation? The temptation is to add excuses and justifications for what you struggle with. Well, it's true for what we might call smaller everyday sins, and, and it's true for, for large evil schemes. They add sin to sin. Now, now what do we got to do? Well, now we've got to kill Lazarus too. And um, all of that leads up to verse 19, which you know, by itself sounds a little strange. But, but remember, there was this debate among the Pharisees. You know, some didn't necessarily want to kill Jesus. They wanted to look for another solution. And so when we read verse 19 as the, uh, the radical party speaking to the milder party and saying, no, look, we, we really have to kill him. Because look at all the, look at this mob. Like he, he, could incite a, he could incite a riot and take us out today if he wanted to. You're gaining nothing by any hesitation, by any delay in our plots. We must kill this man. That's, that's the attitude of the Pharisees. That's the attitude of the radical Pharisees who carry the day. Uh, William Hendrickson once uh, commentated on verse 19 this way, quote, The public has gone away from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are frantic. They also realize they have a more difficult task. They will have to find a way to take Jesus by night if they are to succeed in their schemes. End of quote. And so their evil scheme, which once was simply to find Jesus, now that Jesus has come out into the public, he has so much public support, it's going to now require 30 pieces of silver and a traitor and a grabbing of Jesus by night. And this plot of murder, like the crowd that was shouting and saying things like save us and waving palm branches which were appropriate but not in a way that they understood, so now the the scribes and Pharisees are going to say a word which is appropriate even though they don't know it. The end of our text, the end of verse 19, look, the world has gone after him. Pharisees do not know how true this is. Where are we? We are, the, we are on the other side of the world. We are the four corners of the earth from the center point of Jerusalem where the New Testament church started. And may we be his followers. May we be part of the world, every tribe and nation and tongue going after Jesus. The plot to kill Jesus could in no way stop the plan of salvation. No, their evil schemes are only leading to the very purpose that Jesus needed to accomplish, to die for your sins, for my sins. 
So even unknowingly, the Pharisees are prophesying about the wide spread salvation for Jew and for Gentile, which Jesus Christ brings. And so may we all, to the ends of the world, look upon the triumphal entry of our humble Savior King and rejoice in what he accomplished as he came. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, your purposes are great. They are purposes which we could not have imagined, which we could not have